Vida Abundante welcomes you to our SoundCloud page. We'd like to invite you to download our app, available in the App Store and on Google Play. Also, you can now follow us on Instagram under the name Vida Abu or on Facebook under the name Vida Abundante Cicero. message is a little bit more, more difficult, and we're jumping into chapter two, uh, which is divided not only in these next couple of chapters, but most of chapter two, and then chapters four through eight, and then the remaining chapters are divided with three, uh, if we can call them accusations, or, or rebukes, or, or um, a call to accountability. And so chapter two brings in this hard accusation, this hard call to accountability from God to Israel, and in this case, Hosea, Hosea's children to their mother. But prior to that, we, we've understood, and we kind of have this notion of why God is angry. Why is there a, an, a, a holy, a righteous anger towards his people? And we saw that in the first chapter we saw the attitude that Israel had towards God in the first couple of verses. That was generally the attitude that Israel and Judah had to God. And we saw that represented, represented with the kings that, that are named in the beginning verses. And, and we see that difficulty. We see that attitude and that sometimes distancing themselves from their maker and their creator. And that's kind of their attitude towards God. Uh, and then God represents his his anger in between the relationship Hosea has with his wife. So that increments the, the hostility that, that is going on in the, in the relationship. And God demonstrates that through a married uh, relationship through Hosea and Gomer. And not only that, but then it gets bigger and it, it gets more intensified because now they have children. How many of you guys know that problems get bigger? Problems don't go away when you have children. They get bigger. I've, I've had many relationships come to counseling where they said we thought that our marriage was going to get better once we had kids and that's not the case uh, many times it just gets more difficult and, and and so we see that represented in Hosea and Gomer's marriage they they the intensification of God's anger towards them is just growing and growing and so Israel and their attitude has constantly and consistently year after year moved away from their original position to be within the presence of God. They are drifting away. They, in their sin, have gone away from God. So this isn't God was angry with Israel, and because Israel felt bad that God was angry with them, they moved away. No, it was that God was good to Israel. God demonstrated grace and love to Israel. And in spite of that, Israel fell in love with other lovers and saw other others for their source of, of um, being content. And so they themselves began to drift away from God. This is not is, uh, God's fault. This is Israel doing the drifting. And then therefore, at the end of chapter 1, we get this concept of you are not my people anymore. And then it goes further, you are, I am not your God. I am not your I am. And we saw that a couple weeks ago where this is, it just keeps growing and growing and growing. And so God himself declares himself not their God. And that had to get to a big level. That, that was a, 
a very important moment in, in, in this time where God has said, because of your uh, level of constant sinning against me and from me, I will not be considered your God anymore. But however, last week Henry uh, skillfully taught us what verses 10 through chapter 2 verse 1 say, and it brings in this glimpse of hope. It's this little bit of hope at the end of this terrible message that we get from the beginning verses and God's righteous anger over Israel. And now we get this glimmer of hope where the children will not be called what they were called. No more Luruama, no more Loami, but now my people and my beloved. And now Jezreel will no longer mean place of desolation, but Jezreel will mean what its original meaning is, which is blessing and, and multiplication and hope. So it's providing Israel, once again at the end of this passage, hope. So that's why chapter 1, all the way to the beginning of, verse, of chapter 2, verse 1, that chapter is a summary of everything that we're going to be studying. It shows the anger leading into uh, this concept of hope. It's a valley of anger and shadow of death all the way till we get back to the mountaintop of hope where once again God will be faithful to his promise. But in spite of that last verse where we get this concept of hope, in the moment that we're in, now that we're going to be jumping into chapter 2, we have to have this in the back of our mind. God is speaking through the prophet Hosea, and so Hosea, as we have seen, has demonstrated a life, now several years, of faithfulness to a wife who is constantly whoring after other lovers. So I want you to picture this because this is always, this has to be at the back of our mind all the time. That's why God presents Hosea and Gomer. This is one of the sign acts. This is how God makes us understand his, his concern. Uh, Hosea is constantly going to bed with a woman that is in other beds, that is in other lovers' beds. Can you imagine the, that feeling where Hosea is laying in bed after years. This isn't just one time. This isn't just one year. This is years of infidelity. And Hosea is sleeping next to the woman who is being kissed and loved and lavished by other men. Not only that, Hosea, you can picture him at night waiting up for his wife to come home. But she is at the house of another lover. She comes home and she comes smelling like the other lover's cologne and, and essence and she comes into the bed because she, is, she doesn't care. She, as we have seen, uh, Gomer represents this prideful Israel, this Israel that has no concept or fear of God. She doesn't care. She jumps right into bed and falls asleep with the man who has been faithful to her her entire life. So this is what's going on. And that, when you understand that and you feel that, that tension, you begin to become angry too. But we can't remember that we're not God in this story. We're often Israel in this story. We're often Gomer. We're the ones that have been unfaithful. So, so chapter 2, verse 2, starts off with a bang. Henry ends 
in verse 1, as he was speaking to us uh, last week about verse 1 of chapter 2, you are my people, and tell your sisters you have received mercy, this wonderful uh, glimpse of hope. But then chapter 2, verse 2 starts off, plead with your mother. Let's read that. Plead with your mother. Plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom, for their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully, for she said, I will go after my my lovers who give me my bread and my water and my wool and my flax and my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will hedge her up, way with, hedge her way up with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so she, that she cannot find her paths. Ugh, that is harsh. <laughs> that is a smack in the face. You get this sense of hope at the end of verse one, but immediately, no transition whatsoever. It goes into a direct accusation. Plead with your mother. The ESV, that's what we're reading, translates this verb of reeve. This is a, a in legal terms, in the Hebrew uh, use of the old prophets, it's a, it's a kind of prophetic lawsuit. This reeve concept is more developed in the book of Micah, which one day we'll be able to explore as well, and, and Isaiah and Ezekiel. And this reeve concept is this type of understanding of accusation or a legal dispute. So in a sense, Hosea is bringing Gomer to court, if you can picture that for a little bit. So after everything that she's done, for the past years of infidelity, of going around with other lovers, for the past years, now Hosea is bringing his wife to court. Now, don't get any ideas, men. Don't get any ideas about what to do with your wife if you're unhappy. This is not just a moment of unhappiness. This is years of suffering, but the purpose is a warning. That's why verse 3 says, lest I strip her naked. So it's a plead, and it's a type of legal accusation, prophetic lawsuit, but more importantly, it's a dispute between God and Israel. God is angry with Israel, and he begins to accuse her of what she has done. So this is the reason why God is angry. Chapter 2 goes a little bit more in detail of why God is angry. We saw a little bit about it on a general level through the kings in chapter 1, but now at the detail level, God describes why he is angry and why he is accusing her. And every time we see this type of language in the Old Testament, especially in Hosea, we see that this reeve or this accusation leads to judgment. So in the beginning verses that we're going to be studying here today, we're going to get this concept of accusation and everything that's wrong with the relationship on her part. Everything that she's done wrong on her part. And then, because of everything that she's done wrong, next week we're going to learn about the judgment 
about everything that she's done wrong. So right now, this is the preparatory phase of the, of the legal dispute. This is the, the, the plaintiff pleading his, his, his plea here before everyone and telling Hosea, not only him, but his children are to be the ones pointing to the mother. Now, this is intense. If you have children, can you imagine your children calling you to accountability? And this always happens, especially in, in our day and age where we tell our kids, don't do something, and then they turn around and they tell us, well, how come you do it? And you're like, oh, man, what am I going to do? Oh, it's because I'm bigger than you, or I'm an adult. That's why uh, we don't have an answer to that. But that's typically how it goes. The children are the ones who are now accusing the mother. This is the children in court with their mother. Now, although this reeve, that's the Hebrew word, this this uh, accusation, this legal dispute is set up, it's not fully developed in Hosea. It just gives us hints to what Hosea and God is doing through Hosea. It's kind of bringing, this, bringing us into a, 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 a view where God is accusing, God is angry and rightfully so, and he's pointing the finger now at the, at the woman, at, at Hosea, Hosea to Gomer and, and God to Israel. However, what the real meaning is on here, I translated it this way. It's not only a legal dispute, but I translated verse 2 like this. If you can just try to follow along. If you're in the ESV version, you're, you're going to notice the difference of some of the translations I chose to use. I, I put, denounce your mother, denounce her, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. Tell her to turn aside from the whoring before her and the adultery between her breasts. So in Hosea's context, the more you read it, and then you take a look at some of the constructions in, in Genesis and Exodus and, and in, the, in the time of the law, what's going on here is a call to accountability. So this isn't just, as the ESV translates it, a plead, like asking or or kind of like, please, mother, please, mother. They're not in that because they themselves, the children, are not the ones who are causing this plea to come to happen, to come to occurrence. God is the one telling the children what to do. And so Yahweh is the main speaker here, and he's not just telling them words to repeat. They are to denounce the mother. Now that means a call to accountability. Mother, you are wrong. You are doing wrong, and you need to come to repentance. It's a more of a contend against, denouncer. And it's intensified in the, in the verse 2 because it says it two times. Denounce your mother. Denounce her, for she is not my wife. This is a strong call to go against your mother and tell her, what she is doing is wrong, and she needs to come back to what God has originally planned for her. So it goes a little bit more than pleading, and it goes a little bit more than just rebuking, because the children, to rebuke the mother, would have to be in a moral state, a moral superior state to the mother. So if I rebuke somebody, it's because I'm morally superior than them, or spiritually superior than them, and that's not the case here. Because the children, as we've seen in verse 5 and in verse 2, they themselves are children of whoredom, children of adultery. They themselves have gone after the ways of their mother. 
How sad is that? You got to remember that. The children carry the mother's name, and they themselves are acting like the mother. So they're all grown up now. They're not little babies anymore. They're teenagers now. They're in that time of, 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 of being able to live like teenagers live. We know everything. We know what to do. Don't tell us what to do. And however, they're influenced by their mother, and so now they do as their mother did. And so they themselves are in that position of adultery. But that's interesting that God calls them to call out the mothers. That's, again, God's grace to Israel because the children of the mother represent the children of Israel, represent Israel as a whole. God, again, is showing and demonstrating grace and trying to bring them in. Get on the right side. Be on the side of Yahweh against your mother. This is demonstrating God's anger. And the mother here, as, as, as a leader in the household, not over the man, but as one of the leader in the household, is a representation of Israel again. So this is the important thing, that this relationship keeps coming back and forth between God and Israel. Yahweh and Israel. Yahweh is upset at the leadership of Israel, at her institutions, and most importantly, at her culture. Israel has adopted Canaanite culture. And that's what going up against the mother is all about. She's in that position. She has established institutions, like we've said. She has established altars and high places all over Israel. They've bowed down to other gods. So this is what's going on. And once again, I always ask, why? What, why is this angering God so much. Well, the way she's acting in verse 2 gives us more of an insight. It says, to put away from her whoring. Look at verse 2. The ESV says that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. This is a literal translation of the, of the Hebrew here where even some speculate that the, the whoring on her face would mean ornaments or jewelry, and in some cases, a nose ring. And this is all taken by Canaanite rituals of, of prostitution, where prostitutes would receive gifts from their lovers, and they would carry it on their face. Now, that goes a little bit extreme, and that's kind of speculative, even though that is written in, in Canaanite um, culture, and the Assyrians kind of developed that even further, but, what, but what's really going on here is that this is before her. Before you, you are in constant whoring mode. You're in constant prostituting mode. This is your life. This is what your life represents. This is who you are. And that, the imperative here is put aside. Walk away. Take it away from you. Leave it. Abandon it. The call is for the mother to walk away and abandon the life of whoredom. And that's why it goes a little bit further, where, where it goes into a physical reality. It says, the adultery between your breasts. This, this is the language that God is using, and Hosea is using this, because this brings into the, the intensity of, of this ill conceived 
relationship of sex. This is sex. This is illegitimate sex. This is the type of sex that God is not in agreement with. And this is how she is characterized. And so what is the imperative here? That she is surrounded by this whoring attitude. Adultery is between her breasts. She is to walk away from it. She is to set it aside. She is to move away from that. And this is God telling Israel at a general level, but Hosea is talking to his wife. Hosea is looking at his wife, and he's telling his kids to tell his wife to stop acting like a prostitute. Let that sink in for a little bit. Can you imagine speaking that way to your mother? But this is what she needed to hear. In order for her to abandon her ways, she needed to be called out. We, with God, we can't leave things like, uh, it'll change. It's going to be all right. In a couple of years from now, you know, she's going to get tired. She's not going to want to do that anymore. It, it's all right. Just, just, let her, just leave her alone. Let, let God deal with her. Well, God deals with her up front. And with, sometimes with God... We don't have that luxury of, of just hanging out in sin and being cool with sin. That's why when you come to church sometimes, especially when you come here and we, we talk about this, it's because many of us can fall complacent in our sin. What does it mean to be complacent in sin? Where we're just so used to sinning that it doesn't even bug us anymore. And that goes to show maybe we need to realize, we need to ask ourselves, has God changed my life? Why am I so okay with sinning? Why am I so okay against whoring against God with other people? Not in the physical sense, but in the spiritual sense of seeking others for fulfillment. And so that's why here we call this out because if we don't do it, who else will? You know, sometimes we, we have these attitudes where, we're, where we tell people, hey, if you ever see me messing up or doing something bad, let me know. But when that happens, the person gets upset, right? They're like, Oh, no, no, that's not, you're, you're misinterpreting what I'm doing. That's not what, what, what the case is. But, but when we see sin, it has to be pointed out, and you have to be called to account. You have to be put to account on this. And the children here, this is what's so depressing, is that the children are calling their mothers to accountability. They're the ones telling their mother that, they have, that she has to repent from her way even though they have to do it themselves too. So God is angry because she's doing this. This is the realm that she's in, in adultery and in fornication and in, and in whoredom and in prostitution. And verse 5 says that she's acting shamefully. She is a shame. Verse 5b goes a little bit further. At the end of verse 5, she says, For I will go after my lovers. I want you to pay attention to that. Lovers. Plural. Who give me my bread and my water and my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. 
She is acting shamefully. And not only that, but she is going to other sources for her needs. What does this imply? And and we got to take it at the, first at that physical sense, because we have Hosea and Gomer at the forefront here. This isn't right now necessarily, I mean, even though this is God and Israel, I want you guys to visualize Homer, I mean, Gomer and Hosea. I put, I put the two together and I said Homer. That's funny. I put Gomer and Hosea together. This is what we need to see. Because it's going to get intensified when we look at it with God and Israel. But she is going after other lovers. It implies that she is not satisfied with her man. She is not satisfied with the man who has been faithful to her from the beginning. And because she is not satisfied with that man, because she is not satisfied with the man God has given her, remember God tells Hosea, go and marry a prostitute. She didn't deserve a man like Hosea. And she, and she has him and she is still not satisfied. How sad is that? Because in her unsatisfaction of her life, in this moment, she is going after other lovers. And I want you to understand the plural form here. The plural form of lovers is the same word God uses for his love to his people. Ahav. But the way it's constructed here means illegitimate husbands. Pretenders. Fake husbands. So this isn't just people that are lovers and, 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 and are, are flirting. These are people who pretend to occupy the place of the real husband. But they're fakers. They're pretenders. They're illegitimate husbands. And she is in bed with plenty. This isn't one lover. This isn't two lovers. This is multiple amount of lovers that she is chasing after. And this, this is bad because usually prostitutes have, have those type of people come to them. And even in Canaanite culture, the prostitutes would go up to the, to the mountaintop to offer their sacrifices of, of prostitution and sex. But the people would come to them. And in this sense, we get Gomer chasing after these people. This is a deep, deep visual of of despair and sin and what sin has done in her life. She is constantly chasing after these other lovers. What does that say about her soul? What does that say about who she is on the inside? Something is going on. There's torment in the inside of her heart. She is loved by her husband, and yet she is not satisfied. And she seeks satisfaction with others, many others. But this goes on to prove the point that Hosea never divorces her. I want you to remember that because these illegitimate husbands are that. They're fake. She never got remarried or she never married. She couldn't marry because she was still married. So the the, the verb here of lovers implies that very thing, that 
She is seeking after them while she is still married. So one thing is, you know, we have it in general in our culture. Oh, well, they got a divorce. Okay, well, she's basically free to do whatever she wants. Or the guy is free to do whatever he wants. They're not together anymore. They're separated. They've gone through a divorce. So they, they don't have any accountability with anybody. And that's kind of like, a, like an okay to do whatever you want. But in this case, Gomer is still married and still chasing after other lovers. That's why I wanted you to visualize at the beginning that, that Hosea is waiting for his wife in bed, and she is out partying it up with other lovers. And Hosea is at home waiting for his wife. Can you imagine Hosea? It, it, it just gives you this picture, not only uh, of Hosea waiting alone in bed for his wife, Hosea is alone at home waiting for his wife and his children. His children are doing exactly what the wife is doing. The children are following after the example of the mother. So Hosea is at home by himself. This, is, this just intensifies, again, the relationship God has with his people. She is going after these fake providers. She is seeking after these Ill illegitimate husbands for bread and water, which represent the nutrition for her, which represent uh, food that, that they give her and, and, and kind of dining that they give her. So this is, this is a, a kind of modern depiction of going out on dates and being fed. How many of you guys love that? You know, you get to go out and you get fed for free. They represent this gifts of bread and water that equal nutrition, but they also have, she's also seeking for wool and flax. And you're like, what is wool and flax? She's not looking for sheep. She's looking for clothing. And her illegitimate husbands supposedly provide this clothing for her. These gifts that are coming from these lovers or supposedly coming from these lovers are clothes and shoes and purses and, and wonderful coats. She's being dressed by her illegitimate husbands, supposedly. She also seeks for oil. If you look at, this is, I'm getting this list from verse 5. Bread and water, wool and flax, and my oil, which is literally, in, in Hebrew times, skin care. It's, it's incredible that her skin is being taken care of by the oil that, she's be, that is being provided for her. And not only that, but she receives wine. And that is a representation of life's luxuries in ancient times. Wine were, was only consumed by the elite. And so when it mentions wine here, we have to come to this understanding where this is extravagant. This is a luxury of life. And so she's chasing after these things because she thinks that she's getting them for the, from these illegitimate uh, husbands. So these are the things that are, that are wrong with the relationship. This is what's going on with Gomer. This is why God is upset. And in this anger, but God uses this verse in verse 3. Lest 
The beginning of verse 3, lest I strip her naked. What is God saying here? I am angry, and these are the reasons why I'm angry. But in my anger, I'm still giving you a way out. In my anger, I'm still demonstrating my grace by providing a way out. Lest. So what is he saying? Tell her to stop. Lest or otherwise, if she doesn't stop, what's going to happen? Verse 3 says, I will strip her naked. Which means she will be left impoverished. Verse 4, even upon her children, I will have no mercy. You remember verse 1 of chapter 2? Henry ended last week with, with, with verse 1 saying that they will have mercy. And here, if the mother does not heed, the children will be demonstrated no mercy. The children will receive judgment upon them because they are following in the ways of their mother. But this is important at the beginning of verse 3 because it's God's grace once more over his people trying to get them to stop. Lest I strip them naked and leave them impoverished and their second generation will feel the same wrath. No one is to escape it. Now verse 6 has another conjunction here. Therefore... I want you to pay attention to those words. Therefore, so the, in verse 3, it's lest. If you don't do this, this is what's going to happen. Now in verse 6, it's therefore, if you listen, if you listen to these words, I'm going to use my sovereignty for your protection. Look at God's sovereignty and God's grace in verse 6. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. What is God doing here? Even in this punishment that she is receiving, he is protecting her from going out to seek other lovers. So now that God has come to this point of accusation and point of reeve and point of terminology of of bringing her to court, now God is saying, you know what, I'm going to hedge you up. I'm going to raise a hedge of thorns to keep you in from you continuously pursuing your perverse ways. This is God saying, I am not going to let you sin again. God's protecting Israel. Hosea is protecting Gomer, locking her in so she doesn't go out anymore. And although Gomer may see this as judgment, how are you going to keep me in house arrest? How am I going to be locked up in my house with with not being able to go out? The purpose of this judgment is for her to stop her sinning after her own ways. She's being walled up with thorns. The terminology is interesting because hedges with thorns was used in these these days to keep in wild animals. And so there was pasture land or, 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 or good land outside of the hedge, and the wild animals would sometimes go into that good land and eat up all the vegetation. And so what they would do was, before the time of modern-day fencing, 
they would hedge up, raise up a hedge with thorns to keep these wild animals from eating the vegetation on the other side. And so in a sense, Gomer is this wild animal that needs to be kept enclosed. In a sense, Israel is this wild animal that needs to be enclosed so that they do not continue in their ways. She will not be able to find her paths because her paths lead to destruction. This is the importance here. Although we've been hearing constant God anger, even in his judgment, he protects her, keeps her in, but he doesn't allow her to find her paths. What are her paths? She knows the routes to the lover's home. Her paths represent her intuition, her motives, her ways. And the Lord knows that her ways are not God's ways. Her ways represent death and destruction, and God is closing her in. Now, if you look at verse 7, it says, She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them, and she shall seek them, but she will not find them. God is protecting her from the illegitimacy of these lovers, and she's not even going to be able to find them. She is walled up, hedged up, and she cannot find her source of temporary fulfillment. You have to, you have to keep this in mind. She has lovers. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. However many she may have. She has plenty of lovers because she is not satisfied with the true one but needs it in all these other lovers, and she needs many of them because none of them can satisfy her. And now God is hiding her from them so that she can stop acting the way she's acting. Now this is important to realize because in, at the end of verse 7, she says, then, she, then I will go and return to my first husband. But what has happened here? Verse 3 said, at the end of verse 3, I will make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. At the end of verse 3 represents who this woman is at the beginning of verse 7. Verse 3 represents... This notion of being deserted, impoverished, poor, and about to die. They, the language here is naked and desert-like. Kind of like the way God originally found Israel. You got you to think about this. When she was being lavished with all the gifts, seeking all the gifts from all her lovers, was she seeking after God? You gotta answer that. Is she seeking after God? She's not. What is she seeking? She's seeking after gifts. She's seeking after lovers. She is not seeking God because she has all she needs at the moment. But when all of this is taken away from her, God has left her naked and deserted. What does she do? She comes back. 
she return? Why? Why does she return? Because now she has nothing. You see that? When she has everything, she doesn't seek after God. When she has nothing, she starts seeking after God. When Gomer has everything, forget my husband. I don't need him. But when she has nothing, baby, hey, baby, I love you. Remember me? She comes back home because she's impoverished and naked and about to die. And only in her husband's arms will she be restored back to life. This is a reminder of our life. The prophet Ezekiel represents this in Israel's life. Look at what the prophet Ezekiel says. You don't have to go there, but chapter 16, verses 4 through 8, it says, As for your birth, your umbilical cord wasn't cut on the day you were born, and you weren't washed clean with water. You were not rubbed with salt or wrapped with clothes. This is talking about how they were found, how Israel was found. That's why verse 3 says, you're going to go back to the days as you were born in, in Hosea. You're going to go back to how you were when you were barely born. And what does that represent? In Ezekiel, no one cared enough about you to do even one of these things out of compassion for you. But you were thrown out into the open field because you were despised on the day you were born. Ouch. Verse 6, I passed by you and saw you thrashing around in your blood. And I said to you, as you lay in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you, uh, lay in your blood and live. I made you thrive like plants of the field. You grew up and matured and became very beautiful. Your breasts were formed and you, your hair grew, but you were stark and naked. And then it says this, then I passed by you and saw you, and you were indeed at the age for love. So I spread the edge of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I pledged myself to you, entered into a covenant with you. This is the declaration the Lord God has made for you. What is God saying? In your most Impoverished state is the way I found you. In the most, in your most dirty, in your most completely no hope state, hopeless state, that's how I found you. And what does God say? And that's how I covered you. Hosea and Gomer, Gomer falls into this complete hopeless state. And she is found once again to be in the arms of her real husband who will now cover her nakedness, who will now dress her and give her what she needs. See, the purpose of this judgment was never to reject Israel. It was to bring her to reconciliation. Israel would not come back to God in her prosperity. Israel needed to be impoverished to remember who God was so that she could come back to him. But look at verse 8. We're going to end here. Sad verse 8. What does it say? And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold which they used for Baal. Who gave her the gifts? She thought that her lovers gave her the gifts. 
She thought that she was receiving the gifts from her lovers. But they're illegitimate. They're not real. They're fake. They don't give gifts. They steal. They take. God is the true provider of the gifts. And God, from the beginning of time, was the one that was providing the gifts for Israel. And she did not know that it was God. And that reflects so much of our character in our current state, in our current lives, where everything else is so much more appealing but what God has given to us. We have to realize that God is the original provider of everything in our lives. And he cares for us. And he wants the best for us. And he even, as you notice, never in the previous verses did they mention silver or gold. But even the silver and gold is lavished. This luxury is put over us as God's children. And what did Israel do? The ESV says, her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. The Hebrew construction here is, the silver and gold were melted together to make Baal. What did Israel do with the silver and gold that God gave them? They melted it together, and they made an idol. And then they worshipped the idol. Because they thought that the idol was giving them all that they needed. You see, judgment isn't just God's retribution over your life. Judgment isn't just God angry with you and punishing you so that you can go to hell. No, judgment is for you to realize your impoverished state so that you could come back to God. It's never rejection. It's always reconciliation. How are you going to come back to God and today, I, I really want you to visualize Israel and visualize Gomer and say, I don't want to be Israel or Gomer. I want to be nourished and to be given gifts by my true lover, which is God. And at times when the judgment comes, God's trying to rip from your heart those things that you've been chasing after, if you're not chasing after God. So I pray during this wonderful Christmas season where everything should be about ooh, gifts and, and, uh, and happy, jolly Christmas caroling, I want you to remember this. We can easily lose sight of God. And in our prosperity, keep pouring after other gods. Until the day God calls us back. And so if you're here today, I pray that these words from God in the, book of, in the book of Hosea come straight to your heart. Repent. We're contending with you to seek after God. So let's stand up today. I know Hosea has been a tough book, and we still have 12 chapters to go. But hang in there, because the ending of the book is amazing. But we keep seeing God's grace in the middle of all of it. So let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord, your, your grace 
is reflective upon your constant pursuit to bring us back, to restore us, to restore your children to their original state. Because you are faithful to your covenant and because you are true to your word. And Father, we repent today as a church, as a people before you. Forgive us our sins. We repent from our ways of seeking after other lovers, believing that other things or other institutions or other, uh, other sources are the true providers of our gifts, but all along you're the one that dresses us with heavenly gifts. You're the true provider, and in you the fountain will never be depleted. Father, that we always look to you and to your wonderful gift of Jesus Christ who was given for us. Father, we may hang on to his sacrifice understanding that we have been made righteous through him. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.